Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. On this episode, we begin interview one of a dozen stories that we are going to share with you for this calendar year. Once a month, we will highlight and chronicle someone doing guerrilla ministry, someone whose life embodies this subversive presence that we have talked about all throughout season one. Sometimes they'll be pastors, sometimes they won't. And every three months, these conversations will be grounded in something significant to ministry, with today's being all about the gospel. Now, when we say the word gospel, we could mean a lot of things. So for the sake of clarity, we're going to root this in a conversation that we've had in season one and couch it in our upbringing. As good little evangelicals, the gospel was good news, but it was good for one very specific reason. It got you out of hell. But in today's episode, we're going to wrestle with the question of whether or not the gospel is good news for more than just the afterlife. If it has something to say about our day-to-day, here and now. Specifically, we're going to ask the question of what the gospel has to say about suffering and who it is actually good news for. Because far too often, the gospel is misrepresented as some formulaic way to live your life to avoid suffering. And if you do it just right, your life is going to be full of health and wealth. And to help us answer these questions, I'd like to introduce you to today's very special guest. Hi, I am Emily Taylor, and I am a single mom of three and pastor of discipleship at Grace Point Church of the Nazarene in Shreveport, Louisiana. Now, if you didn't catch it, I'll say it again. Pastor Emily is a single mom. Not only is that rare, but it just might fly in the face of this misrepresented gospel message. As you might imagine, Emily's life has not always been a walk in the park. She has known suffering. And like anyone who has known suffering, she can no longer unknow the things that she knows. Much like Dorothy and her companions, once they see behind the curtain, they can no longer go back to that naive state of mind where they believed there really was a wizard that was all-powerful and mighty. They were instead confronted with the truth and had to reconcile within their own minds what it meant for how they lived their lives. This too happened for Emily. At some point, the doing it right gospel message that kept you happy and healthy simply broke for her. And we wanted to know what that looked like. Also, this interview has a few bugs in it as our internet connection was unstable. And Emily's dog also felt entitled to answer some of the questions we asked her as well. Here's Emily on what broke for her. So, um, it was about 2008. I was having a really hard time with um, finances. My ex-husband and I were going through some difficult stuff um, with our marriage and I was pregnant. I had just gotten through a really um, serious uh, postpartum depression situation from my oldest. And, um, and I was talking to my mom and it seemed like every time I talked to her and she, you know, I was telling her everything that was going on in life and things that were going wrong and how I was frustrated and discouraged. The first thing she would ask me would be, well, are you having your devotions every day? 
Um, and I started to really feel like that was an exercise in missing the point <laughs> in so many ways. Um, almost like you were doing everything right. You like this. Um, and I, that was probably the first time I really began to express, um, how frustrating that sort of mentality was. I'm, I'm not sure that I'd ever articulated it before that, but I remember saying something along the lines of, well, yeah, mom, but this bad stuff is still happening. That's not the catch all. That's not the, you know, solution to everything. Um, I know God is with me, but that doesn't make it like life is easy. That's not how that works. Devotionals didn't equal zero problems in life. Nah, not at all. <laughs> We're talking to you uh, in this topic, this theme of the gospel, and it, it speaks to me of kind of this undercurrent within evangelical churches of the prosperity gospel where God takes care of people that are doing the things right. And so sometimes we mm -hmm. just equate that to being rich or, you know, maybe even being healthy. But I think there's also something to be said about this almost elevation in an idolatrous way of the nuclear family being all together and with it if you're doing God's work. So is that is that something that seemed like was some sort of influence on this conversation? Yeah. And I mean, um, I love that you use the term prosperity gospel because I think in most of our circles, like people are really resistant to the idea of a prosperity gospel. But we teach it when we say, like, if you're um, if you're going to church and praying and reading your Bible, then everything will go well for you and you won't be depressed and you won't um, you won't experience relationship problems and whatever else. Or the purity prosperity gospel of if you remain a virgin until you get married and marry somebody else who does, then your marriage will be wonderful and perfect and everything will be great. And um, and those things are just not true. That's not how God works. Um, it's not how life works. <laughs> um, and it, it, it has to be better. Um, like it's, it's gotta be something we talk about better. Then we asked how her relationship with the church changed as a result of what broke. Well, growing up, I did all of the things. That I was told to do. Like there were, there were things that I knew I didn't agree with things that, um, you know, that I knew in my life as an adult would change, but I, I, I did the big stuff, you know, I studied the scriptures. I told my friends about Jesus. I was in church every day. Um, you know, I did the virginity pledge. I did all of the things right. Um, and I continued to do that. Like when I felt a call to ministry, I surrendered. Um, I went to a really expensive private Christian school that I couldn't afford, <laughs> um, you know, on faith, because the idea was if this is what God's calling you to, then God will provide. Um, and, you know, I, I continued to follow in all of the steps that have been laid out before me to do what I knew I was supposed to do, to do what everybody was telling me to do. Um, and even when things got rough, I remember still thinking, well, I'm doing everything right and God's going to reward that. 
um, I'm being faithful and God is going to continue, like God is going to take care of all the rest of this stuff. Um, and so there was a point at which I realized God taking care of all of these things wasn't going to look like what I thought. Um, that didn't mean that I was going to get the promotion I was hoping for. And it didn't mean I could save my marriage. Um, and it didn't mean that we could not be homeless. <laughs> um, it didn't mean my husband was going to get a job when I, you know, when I was working two jobs and pregnant and he couldn't find anything. Um, I realized that God taking care of these things was not the idea that I had of it. And it wasn't the idea that had been sold to me. Um, I had to wrestle with that for a really long time. But there came a point where I was sitting in a ladies' Bible study and we were studying James. And um, I had, I think we had just gotten uh, out of being living with my ex in laws in their like extra room. <laughs> um, and I had three kids. Um, my husband was unemployed and I was working two jobs. Um, and we were talking about James and I was sitting in this room full of women who were, um, they weren't wealthy necessarily, but, you know, relatively comfortable. Um, most of them had, you know, really secure positions in life. Um, they had never really encountered major hardship and they had never really known anybody who did. And so we're talking about poverty and how the church should respond to poverty. And the prevailing sentiment was that most people who are experiencing poverty, it's their own fault. It's mm. because they've made poor choices. And I remember sitting there in that room and thinking, that's not true. It's the opposite of what James is talking about here. Yeah. It's the very thing James is saying we shouldn't be doing. And I have to say something because like I would sit in those rooms and listen to those conversations and be uncomfortable in the past. But at that point I was like, no, I, I really do have to say something at this point because I know I'm sitting here in this room and I know how I feel but if they're wanting to grow their church and if they're wanting to have people from our neighborhood come into these Bible studies, um, this kind of conversation is, is not going to cut it. This isn't the way that's going to happen. Um, and they need to hear my story. And hopefully I was gracious. But, um, but you know, I just kind of said, I, you know, these things happened because they happened to my family, at least, because the systemic sin of greed and corruption that led to the mortgage crisis that led to our foreclosure, which, you know, um, the, you know, all of the things wrapped up in the, um, in, in, in the economic crisis of 2008 and, you know, all of that, that's, that's a big part of what happened to us. Um, you know, I didn't have a miscarriage because I had sinned in some way or I didn't trust God enough to heal me. Um, that it, we were 
we were having this conversation because they felt like their their place in life as being comfortable and secure was because they had done everything right. And I had done all the same things they had. And my place in life was not. <laughs> um, so that's probably the first time that like I started to engage the church differently. Um, when I um, had to get a divorce and um, all of the questions that come with that, all of the like wonderings and um, whisperings, um, all of that stuff. I, you know, I had to tell that story carefully because, you know, I had to honor my kids' relationship with their dad and I had to honor how the church felt about all of this. But, um, but I did it in such a way that, that made clear that I, I believe that God cared more about the two people in our marriage and our kids than the institution of marriage. And that was something kind of relevatory to some of the people that I was having these conversations with. Um, and when I had to sit in my district interview, because, you know, when you're in the process of ordination and you are getting divorced, you have to have an interview where you explain to, um, to the district leadership what's happening. Um, to see if you're at fault at all. Yeah. To see if you're in any way at fault. Um, and the question that I was prepared to be asked was, did you do everything you could? Um, and that's just such an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because the, the question is, well, I could have stayed through all of these things that were wrong. I could have pretended that everything was okay. I could have kept pushing it down. And making it okay. But that wouldn't have been honoring my kids. It wouldn't have been honoring me. And honestly, it wouldn't have been honoring the sanctity of marriage. <laughs> like if we believe in the sanctity of marriage, then we have to recognize when that's not what it is. Um, that wasn't the question I was asked, but it was the one I had to think through a lot and to like make this decision of you know, if they tell me no, I've got to be okay with that. And I've got to recognize that their opinions of this situation, their assessment is not what matters most. Um, that was a break for me in giving the institutional church the kind of authority that didn't belong to them. Once you experience brokenness, you can never unknow that pain, that suffering, but also that frame of mind and perspective you had on why the suffering took place. Much like Dorothy and her companions in The Wizard of Oz, once you take a look behind the curtain, you can never again unknow what you have seen there. So naturally, we had to ask Emily what her life looked like now, both as a mother and a pastor. What did this brokenness lead to? And how was the gospel still good news, even for a single mom who was struggling to get by? Specifically, we asked what had changed and what had stayed the same. Here's what she said. Well, I started to be a lot more honest. 
um, you know, uh, speaking up when things were like that were uncomfortable. Um, I, I got in trouble for that a little bit, <laughs> um, especially when it was around election time, oh, <laughs> um, because another, why. you know, another part of that, I think for all of us was just recognizing how the church engages with culture and engages with politics and, um, ways that were so inconsistent. Um, and it was probably the 2008 election that that started getting, you know, started solidifying in my mind that there's something just not right here about how faith is being co-opted. And then, you know, of course that just all kept snowballing and getting more extreme. Um, so I learned how to speak in such a way that people would listen hmm. um, without being overly partisan because the answer to partisanship is not partisanship on the other side. Um, but speaking directly to what Jesus tells us about how we should care for people, um, recognizing that nobody gets that right in politics. That's just not set up that way. Hmm. Um, and, and being more, like gently outspoken. <laughs> I kind of had to go back and forth on what that needed to look like. Uh, I don't know how much people recognize that I'm different, but I feel it. I feel a lot more authentic um, than I ever was before. Um, and living into that has given me some freedom to be, um, to be able to minister to people that I wouldn't have had opportunity to before because when you're not when you're doing everything right and when you're following all the rules and um and that's your sort of outward um impression your 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 picture that you're giving um people who are struggling people who are dealing with doubt people who um maybe haven't always followed the rules or don't understand what they are why they should have them um they don't trust you. They don't trust you to be able to say, Hey, I don't, I don't know why this is important. I hear everybody saying that, um, these sexual ethics are important, but I don't understand why, why does it matter so much? Um, they might be thinking that, but they're not going to talk to you about it. If you've got this put together picture, um, I've had opportunities to talk with people that I never would have before because of that freedom. Um, and that's not to say like I'm out there being rebellious. Like that's just not the case. But, um, but I think the, the way that God has led me to be more honest about my own story um, and how things haven't always gone right and how I haven't always made the best decisions because of it. Um, but that God has continued to be faithful anyway. Um, and God is calling me into a faithfulness that allows for mistakes, <laughs> um, that allows for missteps and misunderstandings and being wrong and having to go back and apologize. Um, you know, that, that's a freedom that I think people need and they're hungry for. 
Um, and I'm, I've been privileged to be a part of, you know, friends that have been walking through divorce and they didn't have anybody else to talk to, but because they knew that I had gone through what I'd gone through, um, I was able to be there when they didn't have anybody else to trust. Um, because everybody else in their lives had always, always done everything right. Um, and that, that's a way that I've engaged ministry very differently. Um, I was asked in my ordination interview, what does it look like for you to go and make disciples of all nations? Because you know, that's our, our like motto. It's our <laughs> um, mission statement. Our mission, like go and make disciples of all nations. And, um, and so my friend, uh, James asked me that and, and I said, you know, I have been just in these circles, especially online, um, cause I've had opportunities to build community online um, in, in some various ways, but I've, I've been in these conversations where, um, I encounter people who have been deeply hurt by the church. Um, and I can listen to their stories and hold their pain. Um, and, you know, they may not ever hear, an apology or repentance from the people who've hurt them. But I have the opportunity to say, you know, as a representative of the church, this isn't who we are and it's not who we're called to be. And I'm going to take your story and your pain back with me so that we can do better. Um, those aren't spaces I would have been invited to previously. When you, when you had it all together again with yeah. air quotes. Yeah. Well, as we wrap, I actually have one final question I'm throwing at you. I'm sorry. This is, okay. I didn't, as we wrap up our regular interview, uh, I, I sort of told you this before, uh, but I want to hear your, your response or your reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking with my co-conspirators about who we should have and getting recommendations from, from fellow pastors in the, in the denomination and other folks. We're trying to see who is it that we really want to interview that sort of embodies uh, subversive presence, guerrilla ministry, uh, namely within some of the, the topics we want to talk about this year, and the gospel is one of them. And the quote, and you're going to have to help me with it because I might get it wrong, uh, it's, essentially, it's essentially saying the gospel isn't good news if it's not also good for that single mother in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's Jen Hatmaker, right? Is that the, yeah. and what was the book you said? the From, book uh, For the Love. And I don't think, I, I think it was kind of a pop theology mm-hmm. line for a long time. It sounded nice. Yeah. People went to Haiti more often, <laughs> but part, part of what I find so subversive about your story is you've kind of experienced how, you know, the prosperity gospel falls flat. It, this thing breaks for you. It's, it's this perfect articulation of how sometimes or often even the church just doesn't know what to do with suffering. They don't seem to have any clue of what to do to engage with those in suffering. And here you are saying, well, God's still here. God hasn't abandoned me. Even if I didn't do the formula right anymore, if I don't do this, that, the other. So I immediately connected it with your story. And I wonder if you had any reaction to that. Um, so we don't know how to engage suffering. Um, and I think we really 
have to learn to recover a language of repentance and a language of lament. Um, I'm in the middle of reading uh, The Backside of the Cross right now, uh, Brent Peterson and Diane LeClaire. And, um, and they're talking about what atonement means for those who have been sinned against. Um, what it means when we can look at the sinner and say, you're forgiven, there's all this grace, and that's great, right? We, we should do that. We have to do that. That is a big, you know, like the message of the gospel, right? But at the same time, you know, for those who've been sinned against, the gospel is also a message of hope and comfort and justice. And, um, and we can't do that without giving space for lament um, and without acknowledging our need for corporate repentance. Um, and that's been something that has been just a huge part of my, um, my reading and discussions and study um, just this past couple of years is the idea that we don't know how to talk about when the church has sinned as, as an institution, as, you know, like we have participated in systemic sin that has harmed and oppressed people. Um, and we have to learn how to deal with that. Um, and how to reconcile with the world when we've been wrong. I asked her to tell me more of what this looked like. Would it look like to be a pastor, a mom, and to be bivocational? So, um, I am I am in a very weird space right now with my vocational calling. Um, my title at my church is past, uh, Pastor of Discipleship. Um, but I also uh, organize the like Sunday morning media stuff, and um, I work with the youth from time to time. Um, I was doing teen quizzing coach for a while. Um, Just all of the things. And so a lot of those responsibilities have been taken off my plate. And I lament that in some ways because some of those things were things that I like really loved doing and I thrived and I was gifted, but, um, I'm also a full-time student. And, uh, as of last spring, I'm a full-time single mom. Um, our custody situation changed and they're with me all the time now. And, um, so, uh, as something had to give, <laughs> so, um, thankfully my, my pastor, uh, my lead pastor sees the necessity of, uh, of me continuing my education um, and really investing in that and pouring into that more. Um, so, um, as far as local church stuff, most of the ministry I do is maybe found space ministry conversations as I'm able to have them. And in some ways that's a little easier for me, um, because it's not programmed and it's not like directed and, and those kinds of things. And in some ways it's harder because you have to pay more attention um, and you have to be a little bit available and, um, and you have to build those relationships for people to trust you with those conversations. Um, but I've found ways to do more of that. And in, um, in the last year, especially being able to, um, to sit down and minister with people kind of in the, in the corners and in the, you know, after church and in the, 
oh, this person didn't go to Sunday school today and they're sitting by themselves. Let me, let me see what conversation I can, um, have with them. Um, and I recently started a job at a chiropractic clinic. And so being able to, um, be a non-anxious presence for people who are in pain, oftentimes chronic pain, (laughs) um, is, is something that I'm finding space to do. Um, you know, one of the questions that I get from people, um, especially like older guys, pastors in their 60s and 70s, um, when they hear that I'm an associate pastor on staff, the first thing they ask is, how often do you get to preach? Um, and I love preaching. Like, it's one of the things that just I have passion for and it gives me energy. But um, it's not like the only thing a pastor does. <laughs> it's not always the most important thing a pastor does. Um, so, you know, I, I preach three or four times a year, you know, maybe do pulpit supply from time to time, but, um, but those kind of little found spaces, uh, are something that I'm, I'm kind of learning to embrace more of and being faithful to those opportunities. Pastor Emily called her ministry, the ministry of found space ministry to those who otherwise may be falling through the cracks, who might be hidden away from the public eye, who need to talk to somebody, to vent, to lament and grieve. And as she said, sometimes this ministry might be the most important thing a pastor does, even more important than the Sunday sermon. And the reason is simple. It's because it might mean the world to somebody who simply needs to hear that they're loved, that they're cared about just like Emily did when she was going through all of the suffering she went through while trying to maintain some facade of having it all figured out. This, friends, is what the good news of the gospel looks like, here and now, embodied in the subversive ministries of pastors like Emily. If you'd like to hear more of her story, we will be releasing a full-length and unedited version of our conversation. It will also be a premium episode, which means it costs a very small amount to listen to. In it, you will hear more of her life story, and we will take an even closer look at what this ministry of found space looks like, both as it's embodied in person and online. Spoiler alert, Pastor Emily's ministry of found space is quite large on Twitter. We thank her for sharing her story, for letting us call her a guerrilla pastor, doing subversive ministry, and we thank you for listening. It would mean so much to us if you would rate, review, and subscribe, and share this podcast with others. I've been your host, Josiah, and this has been the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. Thank you for listening.